You are listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry, please visit EnduringWord.com. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, Paul continues on in this last section to Timothy, his young associate, whom he left to oversee the work in Ephesus. And so this is just sort of a section where he's giving a lot of concluding exhortations. You almost have the idea that Paul's thinking, oh yeah, I need to remember to talk about this, and I need to remember to talk about this. And he's sort of checking off a little bit of a list in his mind. So right here, verse 1. Let as many bond servants as are under the yoke count their own masters worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and his doctrine may not be blasphemed. Now please notice, he's speaking about those who are bond servants or slaves. The institution of slavery was very widespread in the ancient world, and particularly in the ancient Roman Empire. Uh, Slaves came from a lot of different sources, both in the Hebrew world of the Old Testament, but then also in the Roman world of the New Testament. Slaves oftentimes came because people were in debt and couldn't pay off their debts. They didn't have our modern systems of bankruptcies and all that kind of thing. If you had debts you couldn't pay, you went and you were basically somebody's slave until the debt was paid off. Uh, Sometimes slavery was a temporary arrangement because of some kind of apprenticeship or training. Uh, Oftentimes slavery was basically the result of being a prisoner of war. And and we look at that and go, well, that's a terrible, terrible thing for somebody to be a prisoner of war. Well, yes, it is, but the alternative was death. We'll either kill you or you come and be a slave. And then, uh, I don't know how much this was practiced in the Roman world, uh, but I know it was practiced, of course, much later in history, uh, the idea of where slaves were kidnapped. Uh, This is sort of the classic picture of slavery that we have in our minds, the great African slavery that came over and the slaves that populated the United States. Again, that was the idea of kidnapping people and forcing them into slavery. That was not the predominant way that people became slaves in the Roman Empire, but the Roman institution of slavery was not pretty. There were a lot of Roman slaves. Matter of fact, there was one time some politicians were discussing the idea that wouldn't it be good if we could be able to immediately identify who the slaves were? And they thought of making the slaves wear a white armband until they realized, do we really want everybody to know how many slaves are among us? Because if they all understood how great their numbers were in our midst, we might have a revolution on our hands. And there were times when they did have slave revolutions, such as the famous one noted by the movie Spartacus. Notice what Paul tells slaves here, verse 1, or actually what Paul tells Timothy to tell slaves, let as many bondservants as are under the yoke count their own masters worthy of all honor so that the name of God and his doctrine may not be blasphemed. Paul told Timothy to teach slaves in the congregation to count their own masters worthy of all honor. In other words, to be good, respectful workers for their masters. Now, please understand, Paul did not do this out of a general approval of the institution of slavery. It's a very important point to make, and I suppose I'm going to take a little bit of time this evening to discuss this, because it's an important point theologically that maybe you haven't run up against, but I'll tell you why it's important. There is a 
theological thinking in the world today that impacts us very much so, even if you've never heard the term. And the idea is the trajectory idea of God's work. And this is how it is. The trajectory idea of God's work basically wants to exaggerate the Bible's um, approval of slavery for this end. The thinking is something like this. The Bible commanded slavery, and then as time went on, culture and human beings got better and made progress, and now we understand that slavery is bad. Now, why would somebody want to emphasize that? And of course, let me tell you the big flaw in that. I'll just cut to the chase. Brothers and sisters, the Bible never commands slavery. Never. It never commands it. It regulates it. It tries to make it a more humane institution. It fundamentally undermined slavery in ways I'll talk about in just a minute. It set slavery on its death throes. But the Bible never, ever commands slavery. Now, why? Do people want to emphasize and act as if the Bible commanded slavery? And I will admit, there have been people, perhaps a fair amount of people throughout the history of church, that have said, well, the Bible commands slavery, and they use the Bible to justify slavery. This was especially true in the American South, you know, during the Civil War and pre-Civil War days. They, they would very much exaggerate this idea, the Bible commands slavery. But the Bible never commands slavery, never at all. Well, why would people be interested in that? Because this is their idea. Just as much as the Bible commanded slavery at one time, and now humanity has progressed and we've gotten over it, so the Bible at one time commanded that there be a different order of men and women in authority in the church and the home. But now we've progressed and gotten over that. And then here's the really tricky one. They say, yes, the Bible commanded that homosexual activity is sin against God, but we progressed and now we've gotten over it. Again, you see how it hits to modern day, just right where we're at. They follow that same lie of continuity, but it is based on a completely erroneous foundation. And the erroneous foundation is simply this, the idea that the Bible commands slavery. It never does. And actually, the Bible subverts slavery by the very fundamental thing. Does it not interest you here in verse 1 that Paul assumed that slaves would be part of Christian congregations? Now, Paul was a part of the church of Ephesus, where Timothy was a pastor, and there were many congregations in in Ephesus. It wasn't like there was one church or one big church. There were many congregations over the whole region. Paul was familiar with these congregations, and this is what Paul knew. He knew that slaves attended those churches in large numbers. And I can't tell you what a scandal it was to the Roman world for a Roman, a secular Roman, someone who wasn't saved yet, someone to visit a church congregation and they would come and they would see a slave and a master sitting side by side in church. The secular would be absolutely scandalized by that, but it was normal operating procedure for the church. And what would really blow their mind is that in that very well church, it might be that the slave was a elder or a pastor in the church And in that sense, he had pastoral authority or elder's authority over a master or his master. But again, that's how it was in the ancient world and in early Christianity. Brothers and sisters, Christianity arose in this social setting where slavery was commonplace. There were, by some estimates, 60 million slaves in the Roman Empire. 
Some slaves had very privileged positions. Other slaves were treated with terrible abuse. But the Bible never commanded slavery. It did permit it and regulate it. Now, why didn't the Bible forbid slavery in the days of the Roman Empire? And I'm just going to be very straightforward with you. I don't know. I don't know. Now, I can give you the theories people give, and you can weigh these theories for yourself. Most people believe that the reason why the Bible did not forbid slavery by declaring it absolutely sinful and and, and commanding slaves to revolt against their masters is they simply say that Jesus, Paul, and others in the New Testament did not call for violent revolution against the institution of slavery because in all likelihood, at least humanly speaking, it would have failed miserably and been a bloodbath. Yet, through the transformation of the gospel, they did effectively destroy the foundations of slavery. Racism, greed, class hatred, and they made a civilization without slavery possible. Listen, as soon as you recognize that that man or woman that you have regarded in your household is a brother or sister in Christ, doesn't it change everything? There's a very famous seal of an abolitionist society from the Civil War period. And and if I was sharper, I would have put this up on the screen for you, but I can just describe it for you. It shows a black slave on one knee with his hands folded, pleading with a chain, you know, coming down from his, he's shackled on his wrists. He's pleading with his hands folded together. His eyes are a bit in an upward gaze. And this is what it says around the perimeter of the the seal. Am I not a man and a brother? Well, once you recognize that, slavery is essentially destroyed. It may take a while, but the death blow to slavery has been dealt. And make no mistake about it, slavery is active in the world today. And some of the most monstrous regimes of our society, of our history, have been filled with slavery. What else was the institution of communism under the Soviet Union, under communist China, under Mao, under other places, but vast machineries of slavery that enslaved millions upon millions of people and killed them without regard? No, slavery is not just in the modern world, but the principles of Christianity completely undermine slavery. Even though there have been people who twist the scriptures and have tried to use the Bible to excuse or establish slavery. And listen, all I can reply to that is people have been using the scriptures to twist their own ends for any number of things. People twist the scriptures to worship Mary. People twist the scriptures to baptize babies. People twist the scriptures to justify any number of things. No, we don't judge it by how the scriptures are twisted, but what they teach when they are rightly divided. No, the church itself was the place where slavery was destroyed. It was not uncommon, as I said before, for a master and a slave to go to church together. It blew the minds of the secular Roman culture, but it was the proclamation of the gospel. These men are brothers. The church is one family. Now, With all that in context, and again, do you understand why I spent so much time on that? I want you to understand that this fundamental equivalence that people make, slavery, um, the order of men and women in the church and in the home, homosexual behavior, that it's all on this trajectory where mankind's getting better and better and we just need to get along with the times, which by the way, I I don't even know what to say about that kind of thinking. We'll We'll just leave that at that. But 
but anyway, that's why I spent so much time speaking about that. But please understand the command here. Work well. These same principles apply to our occupations today. When we work hard and honor our employees, and I know some of you, you work your job and you go, well, my boss treats me like a slave. I can take this. But we're all in this thing of being employees, and we should work hard for our employers. It glorifies God. But when we're bad workers, when we're disrespectful to those in authority over us at the workplace, it brings shame on the name of Jesus Christ. And again, notice this. He says, do it so that the name of God and his doctrine may not be blasphemed. Now, verse 2, and those who have believing masters, let them not despise them because they're brethren, but rather serve them because those who are benefited are believers and beloved. Teach and exhort these things. Now, again, Paul's careful to say, if you're a slave and you have a believing master, don't expect that he's going to give you, you know, lenient treatment and just, well, listen, he shouldn't be abusive to you. The scriptures are very clear on that in other places. There are many places in the New Testament which consciously exhort masters to treat their slaves well. As again, the Bible never commands slavery, but it did regulate it. And part of that regulation was to say to masters, you treat your slaves well. Nevertheless, this is what I don't you understand. Paul's saying, just because your boss is a Christian, don't expect to get favored treatment. Look, I, I think that's honorable. We shouldn't think, well, you know, I can get away with, with taking more time off because I'm a believer. My boss is a believer. Well, I can get away with, you know, pilfering things from the job because I'm a believer. The boss is a believer. No, Paul says. That brings dishonor to the name of God. Warren Wearsby relates the story of a young woman who had left a secular job to work for a Christian organization. She had been with the Christian organization for about a month, and she was totally disillusioned. This is what she said. I thought it was going to be heaven on earth, she complained. Instead, there's nothing but problems. So Warren Wearsby asked her if she was working just as hard for her new boss in the Christian organization as she did in the secular job. The look on her face said, no. So Wearsby told her, try working harder and show your boss real respect. Just because you're in the office and are saved, it doesn't mean that you can do less than your best. She took his advice and the problem's cleared up. So again, don't expect special treatment on the job because your boss is a believer. And again, the idea, teach and exhort these things. Now going on to verse 3, where he begins to talk about money contentment and godliness. And before we get this, uh, between now and the end of the chapter, he's going to talk a lot about money. And it kind of struck me, well, why? Why talking so much about money here? Well, understand something. Ephesus was a banking and financial center for that whole region of the Roman Empire. Ephesus was a wealthy city. There is no doubt that there were some people in the whole Ephesian congregations, and I imagine that over the whole region of what was called the Roman province of Asia Minor, of which Ephesus was the capital, in that entire region, um, there were thousands of Christians. When you read the work described in Acts chapter 19, you would probably suppose that there were thousands of believers. Among those thousands were no doubt some who had considerable resources. So here, Paul's going to speak to those um, who misuse. But notice this. Before he talks about money, he's going to lead into it by talking about what people do with God's word. Verse 3. 
If anyone teaches otherwise and does not consent to wholesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, and to the doctrine which accords with godliness, he's proud, knowing nothing, but is obsessed with disputes and arguments over words, from which come envy, strife, reviling, evil suspicions, useless wranglings of men of corrupt minds and destitute of the truth who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. From such withdraw yourself. Again, Paul is coming back to a theme that he established earlier in the first chapter, that Timothy must be on guard against those who would misuse the word of God. Those who, look at verse 3, do not consent to wholesome words. He's warning Timothy against the argumentative heretic who leaves the word of God to promote his own ideas. Brothers and sisters, all I got to tell you is those people are out there. There there are people out there, and I, I won't call them crazy people, because oftentimes they're not crazy people. They're very sane people who might hold one crazy idea. But man, they hold that one crazy idea with all their strength, and they're obsessed with it. They are, as he says, they do not consent with wholesome words, but they claim to honor God's word while actually misusing it. There's a lot of different ways that people do not consent to the truth of God's word. Some people deny God's word. Well, that's, that's not consenting to it. Some people ignore God's word. That's not consenting to it. Some people try to explain away God's word. Some people twist God's word. And those kind of people, look at what Paul says about him in verse 4. He is proud knowing nothing. And just like all the proud... They won't admit to their lack of knowledge. And like most proud people, they're able to convince other people that they're experts when actually they misuse it. And one way to know these people, look at verse 4, they are obsessed with disputes and arguments. Those who misuse God's word, they love to argue. And again, I don't know if you've met people like this. Maybe... And I don't say with any like supernatural knowledge or anything, maybe there's an issue or two where you could be like this. Look, there's something like this in my life that I have to very consciously hold myself back in. I don't know for how many years it's been, five years, 10 years, last five or 10 years, I've thought a lot about the issue of infant baptism or believer's baptism. It can be a little bit of a hobby horse for me in my own mind. And you know what a hobby horse is? A hobby horse is a horse that rocks back and forth but never goes anywhere. And I, I make in my mind the treatise I'm going to write. Uh, I've got in my mind the videos I'm going to make. And maybe I'll make them. But you know what? You know me. My testimony is clear before. Have I conducted this hobby horse before you from this pulpit? I have not. Maybe I've mentioned it from time to time. But if you only knew how much I held back, because again, again, that's not the proper role of a teacher to just stir up arguments and just, do I think it's something important? Yes. But it it just has to be kept in perspective. And when it doesn't happen, look at the fruit of these disputes and arguments. Verse 4 mentions envy, strife, reviling, evil suspicions. Listen, I got to say, that sometimes, praise the Lord, it, it, it's been rarely my experience, and I thank the Lord genuinely for that, but sometimes that speaks of how the pastor is treated. 
These argumentative people, they envy the pastor and his office. They'd never admit to it, but they do. They, 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 they want to try to create strife among Christians. Just again, look at the words of verse 4. They would promote the reviling of Timothy and other leaders in the church. And that they'd be the source of evil suspicions. Sowing about evil suspicions about Timothy and other leaders. Now listen, Timothy needed this warning both to strengthen and say, okay, this is normal. This, this is a struggle that those who are faithful proclaimers of the word go through. And I just say, I want to thank the Lord that I've had very, very little of this kind of attack in my own ministry. Maybe the Lord knows that, that uh, I, I've got a weakness for this stuff and he's just spared me. But Paul needed to encourage Timothy in this context. And then he comes into this thing in verse 5 where, again, he's going to begin to talk about the idea of money and contentment. In verse 5, he says, who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. This is another characteristic of those who misuse God's truth. Their interest in the things of God is not entirely for God's glory, but it's at least in part motivated by their own desire for wealth and comfort. They suppose godliness is of great gain. I find it interesting. Paul's saying, listen, this, people who are, are, are in the ministry, people who attack ministers, basically to, to stir up notoriety, to stir up money, to stir up web traffic, they're supposing that godliness is a means of gain. Now, I think it's fascinating there because it seems like as soon as Paul wrote that, although it It's possible that maybe he wrote this with his own hand. Maybe he dictated it to a scribe. But as soon as he either said it or wrote it, a thought came into his mind. Look at verse 6. Here's the thought. Now, godliness with contentment is great gain. I love that because Paul made the statement without apology in verse 5. It's wrong for us to think that godliness is a means of gain. That the reason why I should follow Jesus is that it's all going to be sunshine and easy things and everything's going to be great and it's going to be this wonderful primrose path and everything's going to be wonderful and I'll have, you know, blah, blah, whatever. You, you get the idea. It's wrong to think that way. Godliness is a means of material gain. But then again, Paul says, now wait a minute though. I don't want to be misunderstood. It's not like we're not gainers for godliness. We are gainers for godliness. I love how he qualifies it in verse 6. Now, godliness with contentment is great gain. It is true that godliness is great gain. I almost think Paul's taking it back a little bit from verse 5. I said they're wrong because they think godliness is a great gain. Then he goes, well, but wait a minute. It is great gain if you combine it with what? Contentment. Oh, that's a beautiful word, isn't it? Contentment. Truly something that money cannot buy. The heart that is basically discontent will never, ever have enough. They live by the itch for more. And that's what they want. Because the idea isn't a number in their bank account that makes them content. No, they they just have this fundamental itch for more. They live their life to shop and acquire and gain and store. Brothers and sisters, whenever we think that getting something material or getting more of it will truly answer our life's needs, we lack this contentment. One way to kind of is 
How much are we grieved at material loss? Now look, um, if you lose your car, your home, whatever, I don't expect you to be walking around happy about it. Though maybe you're going to get a sweet insurance payout. I really don't know. But listen, I just generally, I'm not saying that we feel no pain at these things. But really, what's the depth of the pain? How deep does the wound go? How deep does it go to be able to just say, now wait a minute, I really see that life does not consist in the things that a man or a woman possesses. And whenever we get an inordinate pleasure from buying or having some material thing, we lack this contentment. How happy does it make you to get the latest thing? And again, this is such a heart thing, isn't it? I, I can't say... Well, yeah, I got the latest smartphone. Oh, but I hate it. You know, come on. That's, yeah, you can be excited about it. It's fine. But in your heart, you should be able to have the Holy Spirit speak to you and say, you know what, David? You're a little too happy about this. You're a little too excited. Yeah, I, I don't know, on the happy scale, you know, a four or five would be fine for this thing, but you're up at nine or ten. Cool your jets a little bit, David. You're putting too much trust in a material thing to give you contentment. No, but godliness with contentment is great gain. I love what Paul said in Philippians chapter 4, verses 11 through 13. Let me read that to you. Not that I speak in regard to need, for I have learned in whatever state I am. First of all, I said, I have learned. It wasn't in Paul automatically. He had to learn this. And I think we all have to learn it, don't we? For I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. I know how to be abased and I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things I've learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and suffer need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Now, do you like that last verse, verse 16 of Philippians chapter, verse 13 of Philippians chapter 4? I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Woo, what a great verse. But do you realize what it's written in the context of? It's written in the context of contentment. I've learned to be content. By the way, I like what he says. I've been content when I've had a lot, and I've been content when I've had a little. Some people are so tortured by guilt when God blesses their resources and give them a lot, that they're just, oh, they're just always worried about it. Listen, if you take a look at the Bible, you'll see that God has honored and blessed many, many wealthy men in the scriptures. I mean, I could make the list, but you just know. So no, Paul said, I can be content having a lot, but I've also been content having little. The state of his heart did not depend on his material resources. And this is the heart of contentment. Look at verses 7 and 8. He says, For we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. And having food and clothing with these, we shall be content. I mean, you just, Paul could just put the pen down and walk away, right? How much did you bring into this world? Nothing. Not only did you not have even a penny, you didn't even have a pocket to put the penny into. You came into this world with nothing. And you know what you're going to take into the world to come? Nothing. You know what they use gold for in heaven? To pave the streets. They use it for asphalt. They use great pearls for gates. It's a different economy altogether. 
And just having this mentality that says, listen, listen, it's certain we can carry nothing out. It's been said, and it's kind of a preacher's cliche, but it's a pretty good preacher's cliche, that you never see a hearse pulling a U-Haul trailer. Of course, somebody will go online and find me a picture of a hearse pulling it. Don't do that. I'm sure you can find it online, but you get the idea. It just doesn't happen. When you pass from this life to the next, it's what you've done with what God has given you that's really going to matter. And so he says, having food and clothing, we shall be content. Listen, we get jaded over the years. We have an overstimulated culture. And and the whole marketing and advertising industries, they're pretty good at at deliberately creating discontent in me. Yeah, I'm driving my car. Oh, my car's just fine. It gets along pretty good. And I see that commercial. Oh, my stars. Did you see that car in that commercial? Oh, that's awesome. Look at that thing. And all of a sudden, I'm looking at my car. That piece of junk I have, you know. And again, it's easy to happen. but, But no, we just need to have a godly perspective on these things. And the idea is just, we have contentment from the Lord. He goes on and hits it even harder in verses 9 and 10. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare and into many foolish and harmful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil from which... Excuse me, for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. Significantly here, Paul didn't point out having riches, but the desire to be rich. When somebody is obsessed with the desire for riches, it warps them. Now look, I need to be very plain on this. Because especially in our day and age, people misunderstand this all the time. Poor does not mean godly and rich ungodly. Nor is it true the other way around. There were many remarkably godly men in the Bible who were almost unbelievably rich. Abraham, David, Solomon are examples. I mean, these guys were almost unbelievably rich. Richer in their day than any of the great billionaires of our own day. These men were unbelievable, but they were godly men. So we shouldn't go around with the idea that, you know, well, poor means automatically godly and rich, no, but nor is it the other way. I like what the psalmist said in Psalm 62.10. Remember this verse, Psalm 62.10. If riches increase, do not set your heart on them. No, instead, he says, verse 9, those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare. Now, to me, this is especially, especially a rebuke of something that traditionally has been called in Christian circles the health and wealth gospel or the prosperity gospel. It's kind of the guy who goes out there and whips up the congregation and says, God wants you rich. God wants all his children driving, you know, the Cadillac or the big fancy car and God wants you, and of course, the whole key for them, what is it, the key for God making you rich, is for you to give money to that preacher. Isn't it funny how that works? And and this distorted idea of the way God wants to bless us, 
Because let me tell you, I say without apology, without apology I say this, God wants to bless the finances of the believer. And especially when believers are biblically generous, when they give as God would have them give, you see the blessing of God on their finances. And I believe that that is the blessing of God. And God wants to do that and loves to do that. But that is a far cry from this desire to be rich. And if that desire to be rich is coming from the pulpit, if it's coming from the preacher, what an abomination. What a true abomination. And again, we see it's a twisting of something. Instead, look at the danger. The love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Think about it. There is not a single evil in this world. Not a single form of immorality. Not a single form of murder. Not a single form of injustice. Not a single form of violence. There is not a single form of evil on this earth that will not be practiced for the sake of money. That's how powerful it is. So he says, no, the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. And those, those who pursue riches with this wrong, wrong way, look at verse 10, there's a tragedy to it. They have pierced themselves through with many sorrows. I suppose that you and I, we, we know about people, sometimes we know them personally, sometimes we just know their, their stories. And by the measures of this world, they've got a lot. But their life is pierced through with many, many sorrows. There's no contentment in Jesus Christ. There's no peace of God in their life. And what do you have then? What do you have? You have nothing. No, I'll tell you, starting at verse 11. Well, no, let let me read you one thing. I, I, I can't leave this section going to verse 11 without reading you this quote from John Trapp. John Trapp, our Puritan commentator, that we just love the way he writes the occasional phrase. Here's John Trapp, quote, So do these strangle, drown, poison their precious souls with profits, pleasures, and preferments, and many times meet with perdition and destruction, that is, with a double destruction, temporal and eternal, as some expound it. That man could write a sentence, could he not? Now, that piercing through with many sorrows on this world and the next. What a tragedy to have so much and have it be a pain to you instead of a blessing to yourself and others. Now, starting at verse 11, here here is where it gets good. Let's admit, it's been pretty negative talking about that. Here, starting at verse 11, we get into Paul describing true riches. You want to get into true riches? Here's true riches. But you, O man of God... Flee these things and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Lay hold on eternal life to which you were also called and have confessed the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I urge you in the sight of God who gives life to all things and before Christ Jesus who witnessed the good confession before Pontius Pilate that you keep this commandment without spot, blameless until our Lord Jesus Christ appearing which he will manifest in his own time, he who is the blessed and only potentate, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, dwelling in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see, to whom be honor and everlasting power. Amen. Now you read that. That's six verses strung together. Say, David, usually you're just taking a verse or two at a time. Why did you do six? 
Because can't you see Paul was on a roll right there? Can't you see this outpouring of heart? He goes, listen, Timothy, you got these people with their issues in the Ephesian church. Great. Now you know how to speak to them. Now you know how to instruct them. But you, you're supposed to be different. Look at that in verse 11. But you, O man of God. This is a contrast. Timothy, you especially as a minister of the gospel, you're not to live for riches and material wealth. Flee those proud arguments of the people who misuse God's word as we studied earlier in the chapter. No, you're to be different. Instead, verse 11, pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, gentleness. You see Paul piling word upon word because he's trying to set Timothy's, I said Timmy again, Timothy's vision upon a higher level, a higher aspiration. Timothy, you got something greater to live for. And you, verse 12, fight the good fight of faith. Going God's way against the flow of the world, it's not going to be easy. You better have the same determination that a soldier has. Now, I find it interesting because if you think of Timothy as a soldier fighting the good fight, how did Timothy get into the army, so to speak, God's army? Well, first, he was drafted. Look at verse 12. To which you were also called. Right, that's what happens when somebody's drafted. They get a letter from the guy. You're drafted. You're called. Uncle Sam wants you. Timothy, you were drafted into the Lord's army, but at the same time, you also chose it. Look at verse 12. And have confessed the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. You, you, yes, I've been drafted in this word, but I'm also a volunteer who has freely confessed my willingness to serve the Lord in this way. And I've made this confession, I love this phrase, in the sight of God who gives life to all things. The God who gives life to all things. Paul comes back to something that he touches on occasionally in 1 Timothy, but several times throughout his letters, the idea that God is our creator. Brothers and sisters, I just want to give that to you again and again. Keep it in your mind. God is the creator. We have obligations to God simply because he is our creator. And then he says, verse 14, until our Lord Jesus Christ's appearance, Jesus witnessed the good confession before Pontius Pilate, and he's going to come again. And then starting at verse 15, He starts describing Jesus. He, it says, he who is. I want you to put this, don't you see in these verses, he's trying to stir Timothy's courage. Fight the good fight. Don't be like them. Rally yourself, Timothy. I, I know it's a difficult job. You must get discouraged from time to time. You feel like you've got a lot of enemies out there. You feel like you've got these people opposing you. But get in there and fight the fight. And when he does that, he concludes with this exhortation, think about how great Jesus is. That's what it comes down to. If you and I are going to be properly motivated to live the Christian life, as we can, as we must, the motivation is going to come from a focus on Jesus Christ. It's not going to come from a focus on self. But when we look at who Jesus is and understand how great he is, and look at this description of how great Jesus is. First of all, verse 15, he is the blessed and only potentate. He is the one who alone has all power and strength. 
He rules over the universe from an occupied throne in heaven. Now, when you keep this idea of the greatness of Jesus Christ and who he is, it will inspire you to do great things throughout the history of the world. How many battles have been won because the soldiers look to their general, the soldiers look to their officer, and the, the, uh, the strength, the courage, the resolve, the wisdom of their officer and that thing, it inspired them to do things that, that were beyond themselves. It's as if he says, you're in this fight, Timothy. Look, look at your commanding officer, Jesus Christ. He will inspire. He'll inspire you knowing that he is the blessed and only potentate. Verse 15, he is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. Again, the majesty of man fades in comparison to the glory of Jesus. The richest, smartest, most influential people on this earth, they are midgets next to Jesus Christ. Doesn't even compare. And I didn't mean that in any offensive way. They're small. They're insignificant. They match nothing compared to Jesus. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And verse 16, who alone has immortality, dwelling in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see. Jesus is holy. Do you know what it means that Jesus is holy? He is not merely a superman. Jesus is more than a man. He alone has immortality. Nobody has immortality the way Jesus does among all humanity. Who alone dwells in unapproachable life, who no man has seen or can see. And then verse 16, to whom be honor and everlasting power. We should honor and worship such a great God. No wonder at the end of verse 16, what does Paul write? Amen. Amen. Right on amen to that. Now, doesn't it seem like the letter should end there? But I don't know if you're like me. You know, you have a conversation or you write a letter and think, oh, I, I want to add this. Was this clear enough? Did I emphasize this enough? So now Paul's going to come back to something that he discussed earlier in the chapter, verses 17 and 18. Command those who are rich in the present age not to be haughty, nor to trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God who gives us richly all things to enjoy. Let them do good, that they may be rich in good works, ready to give, willing to share, storing up for themselves a good foundation for the time to come, that they may lay hold on eternal life. What a fascinating phrase Paul uses. There's many fascinating phrases, but look at that phrase in verse 17. Those who are rich in this present age. It's like there's an expiration date on all those riches. You have them. Yeah, you're rich in the present age. And I suppose any one of us, we'd rather be rich in the present age than poor in the present age. But you know how much that's good for? The present age. That's it. So what do you do? Well, first of all, you're not proud. Verse 17, tell them not to be haughty. I suppose pride is a constant danger with riches. It's very easy to believe that we are are more because we have more and we just shouldn't think that way but again verse 17 nor to trust in uncertain riches but in the living god you know god knows our tendency this is a tendency for each and every one of us each and every one of us has the tendency to trust more in material things than we do in spiritual things. It's how we're wired as human beings and our culture around us tells us that's how we should think. But Paul says, no, 
Riches of this world, they're uncertain. The living God has a much greater certainty. He is completely certain. And so what should we do? We should do good that they would be rich in good works, ready to give. Be a giver. Do good with your resources. That's what guards your heart from materialism and trusting in uncertain riches. You and I need to be givers to God's work and God's kingdom, not primarily because the church needs the money or the ministry needs the money or whatever it is. Though it's true, I mean, of course, there's practicalities, but that's not the primary reason. The primary reason that I need to be a giver and you need to be a giver is to keep our heart free from materialism. I think it's almost like a vaccination, uh, an inoculation against materialism to have a very giving heart. And that's what God wants us to be and to do. And what do we do at the end of that? Verse 19, we will lay hold of eternal life. That's what we're looking for. What a better contrast that is to what he wrote about previously when he talked about just being rich in this present age. See that contrast? Rich in this present age, verse 17, to laying hold of eternal life. Now to conclude the letter. And you know, we're going to get into the second letter Paul wrote to Timothy. And these last two verses of 1 Timothy are a beautiful lead-in to 2 Timothy. Because 2 Timothy just displays a little more of the passion and longing of Paul's heart. In 1 Timothy, we've seen a lot of Paul, the wise teacher. But look more at the depth of his heart here in verses 20 and 21 with which we conclude the letter. O Timothy, guard what was committed to your trust avoiding the profane and idle babblings and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. By professing it, some have strayed concerning the faith. Grace be with you. Amen. This is a theme that Paul repeats often in this letter. Don't get distracted from what the main things are. Guard what's committed to your trust in verse 20. And stay away, verse 20, from those vain babblings. Paul had confidence in Timothy. I believe that he did trust him. Yet Paul knew that he needed this encouragement. He needed this. And I I, I know um, it's popular for Bible teachers to kind of, to, to look at Timothy as something like a weakling. Oh, look at how many times Paul has to exhort Timothy to be strong and to sort of, you know, so to speak, suck it up and be strong and all that. And we think, well, Timothy must have been a real weakling. I got to say, the more I read the letters of 1 and 2 Timothy, I'll tell you my read on it. I don't think it was so much that Timothy was a weakling. I think the job was so enormous. And it's like, you need special courage, unique courage for such a great job. And then he says, guard what was committed to your trust. Because not everybody does. Verse 21, some have strayed concerning the faith. Therefore, we must do all that we can to keep this trust. And then he ends with those great words. Grace be with you. Amen. Look, um, Timothy had a big, big job to do. He wasn't just the pastor of a congregation 
or even a large congregation. He had oversight over a broad work of God in a whole region, one that I think numbered in the thousands of believers. It was a big job, but he could trust in God to strengthen for it. Same is true for you and me. I don't know what God's put on your plate. You know, he hasn't put me in the same place of Timothy where I have to look over the whole work of God in an area like Asia Minor and that. But whatever responsibility God has given me, I don't need to be intimidated by it. I can be bold and step forward. The same is true for each and every one of us. Jesus Christ is there to strengthen us and fill us right along the way. Let's ask for him to do that by his Holy Spirit right now in prayer. Father, this is our prayer. We see the the stirring encouragement of faith that uh, Paul gave to Timothy. We see, Lord, the wisdom from Paul in guiding this pastoral colleague of his. Lord, we need the wisdom, but we need the strength. Lord, you know um, how far we can be stretched. You know how much weight we can bear. Lord, I pray that you give us the unique ability to look at things with an eternal perspective, with an emphasis on spiritual truth, and to walk after you in all your ways. Lord, doing that, we, we will walk in the path that you have for us. I pray for every believer here this evening that you give us your wisdom and your strength to bear up under whatever responsibility, whatever calling you've given to us. Lord, give that to us right here, right now. Strengthen us to fight the good fight in whatever place you give us to fight it. We pray it, Lord, and believe that you will. In Jesus' name, amen. You have been listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry and how to grow in your relationship with Jesus, please visit EnduringWord.com.